Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanokas, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to our latest episode, which is the latest in the mini-series we're running for the podcast. It's a series of debates and discussion around the ranking of top drivers from some of Formula One's most famous teams. And this time around, we're discussing a team that has utterly dominated the championship in two separate spells as a constructor, as well as having major success as an engine supplier. Of course, it's Mercedes. But before we dive into our top 10 ranking of the Mercedes F1 racers, which, as the team has only had 12 drivers in total compete in the World Championship since 1950, but it did, of course, have major success in Grand Prix racing before the Second World War, so I list therefore includes drivers from that era let's ask the person whose constant list writing is the inspiration for this series to go over how he puts the rankings together it's autosports chief editor kevin turner and kev specifically i wanted to, i wanted to know about mercedes only having 12 drivers compete in the world championship did that make it more difficult to arrange this list given the low numbers that have uh, sort of represented mercedes at that level uh no i don't think that made it i mean obviously it's you've got a smaller sample size so that makes it easier what made it harder was that because we're doing uh, Mercedes Grand Prix drivers as opposed to just F1 um, it required a bit more research because although my pre-war motor racing knowledge is is reasonable I did have to uh, it, it's not straight off the top of my head like some of the some of the more recent things so that took a lot more digging out of old dusty books uh, and go, going through old uh, actually some old footage and things as well um, which there, which you can find not a lot but there is some um, so this this was the hardest in terms of the amount of time I had to spend on 
the research, but in terms of putting them in order, probably not one of the hardest ones. I'm surprised the books are dusty. Are you not constantly reading about the success of Mercedes in the pre-war era? Constantly reading about something uh, in the past in motorsport, but not specifically just the Mercedes stuff. Um, and yeah, as you know, Alex, in our, in our job, we don't tend to be looking quite as far back as the 1920s or 30s. And in fact, we've got one person on this list who is first pre-First World War. So that way, that doesn't come up very often in our day-to-day jobs. Before we get stuck into Kev's ranking of the Mercedes drivers, there's just one more thing to do, and that's introduced my second guest on this podcast. Back for more, it's Autosports, Matt Q. Uh, Matt, are you ready to stump Kev once again, as you did by referencing Tazio uh, Nuvolari in our Ferrari discussion? And by the way, I know you stumped him because he brought it up several times uh, after you'd left the office and the, on uh, subsequent days following that recording. Oh, fantastic. I'm uh, I'm glad I made a, a, a disagreeable interjection. I'm, I'm happy with that. But no, I have to say it's sort of a bit of a bit of a preview for what's uh, coming up. One, obviously, as, as Kev said, there's only two drivers sort of miss out on this list. And I have to say on I think he's done a better job here. <laughs> Not too many uh, major, major quibbles with this one as a little insight. But um, I, I again happily play the role of uh, annoying devil's advocate and, and just be deliberately contrarian uh, as much as possible, if anything, to get us over our, our time limit. So Matt Q essentially playing the role of Matt Q for this podcast. Wonderful stuff. Oh, wait, oh. <laughs> Good at it. Always, you've had enough practice. I mean, it's always a good move to uh, to publicly criticise your boss uh, in in any scenario. But anyway, right, let's get into uh, into the ranking. Uh, so, just um, just again, as we've discussed on on previous episodes, for each entry, Kev, you're going to explain why which driver is in which slot, and then Q, you're going to examine Kev's logic and reasoning and where he's placed them. Uh, I'm sure some of them will come up as we go through the list, but we'll also assess the drivers that didn't quite make the cut. But coming in, of course, at number ten in the top ten ranking. It's Luigi Fagioli. His Mercedes years were 1934 to 1936, so we're starting off immediately with a pre-war driver. He scored six uh, major Mercedes Grand Prix wins, didn't take any titles. But Kev, I, I wonder if we start there, what, you know, for listeners who don't know, what title were they competing for before the Second World War? So, well, there was the European Championship um, for much of the 1930s, which really effectively was a, was a world championship. I mean, obviously, it didn't have, have as, as broad a calendar as we have now, but that was a, that was the top level of Grand Prix racing, if you like. But it's probably also worth saying that it's, it's really quite tricky to work out what were the top level Grand Prix's, because uh, uh, the, the there were lots of Grand Prix's, but some of them were quite minor, um, some of them were major, some of them were major even if they weren't part of the European Championship. So... I've uh, I've had to make a judgment call in terms of the Grand Prix wins for uh, numbers for some of the pre-war drivers. Um, so yeah, so it's not an exact science uh, in the way that it is. The, the World Championship makes things nice and neat and easy, but actually, of course, reality isn't like that, and and the pre-war races are, are particularly true um, in that way. Well, Q, with with that with it not being an exact science, does that mean you've got? You know, ample opportunity to disagree with potentially Fagioli not being at number ten, or is he a deserved uh, deserved, got a deserved place there? Would you say? Well, as as I said on my previous appearance on his top ten list, I think this is possibly my favourite position in the whole ranking because that's when you have to sort of uh, stop sitting on a fence and draw a line somewhere and and then upset you know the the listeners who feel that their driver has uh, has been missed out. So uh, it's now a good time to just talk about. Uh, uh, yeah, a couple of drivers on. who are on this list. So one, and this isn't me being flippant because he only has one way, but he only has one way to start. So uh, George Russell uh, probably will be uh, in this list if we record it in a couple of seasons' times. But I'd say Bahrain, as brilliant a showing as that was, obviously not enough. But maybe 
Is it surprising? I don't know, but obviously Michael Schumacher, um, part of you know the the second coming, if you like, of, of Mercedes um, from 2010 to 2012, not not on this list, and obviously was replaced by Hamilton. And then the regulation changed, and then and then we know how how that that's gone. But you know that sort of second generation super team of Schumacher, Braun coming back together. Okay, he didn't. It was Rosberg who took that win in 2012, but you know the the not but sort of technically a pole in Monaco and um and uh and his his star performance in in Canada in 2011 not not enough to get him in this list Kev not not quite i mean there were two drivers that um uh, and George Russell wasn't one of them i don't think you can put someone in a list like this on the basis of one outing uh, and let's not forget, although he, he could, should have won that race, he was out-qualified by Valtteri Bottas as well. So it wasn't a complete dominant weekend. Not by, uh, not by much, though. He was right with Bottas. He was right with Bottas. But we, we expect him to be better than Bottas, right? And to be ahead of him on this list in a couple of years' time. So in that context, that race will become less significant over time, I think. Um, but yeah, the two candidates for number 10, other than Fagioli, were, were Mark Schumacher uh, and Richard Seaman, the pre-war English, the best pre-war English driver. Seaman doesn't get in because really he won the one one race, um, which was slightly fortunate because his teammate caught fire in the pits, uh, and he was still he was really becoming a, 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 a good driver, a great driver when he was killed at Spa the following year. So he he doesn't quite make the list on that. Um, whereas Mark Schumacher's problem is the other way around. Is that I think that you know if you're a Mark Schumacher fan, are you pleased that he came back for those three years? I'm not sure that he did his. It would be harsh to judge him on that as his whole career because I think the motorcycle accident he had between retiring from Ferrari in 06 and coming back in 2010 was more significant uh, than perhaps people realised at the time. He obviously missed three whole seasons. The rules changed in that time. But ultimately, you know, he wasn't as good as Nico Rosberg, who wasn't as good as Lewis Hamilton. How key was he to building that team up? I'm not entirely convinced that he was, and you can see a big step up actually in their competitiveness when Lewis Hamilton joins for 2013. So uh, he was he was very close, but if we're comparing with Fagio, actually there's some similarities because they both had those sort of three-year stints at Mercedes, both as Mercedes came back in uh, as a constructor. So Mercedes' problem in 1934 was that it didn't have a top-line driver. Rudolf Caracciolo would have been the obvious one, but he was still injured from his Monaco crash, so they weren't sure that they could rely on him. And Manfred von Brauchitsch was still too, uh, too, too much, uh, too inexperienced. Really, Fagioli was an established top line. He'd won Grand Prix for Maserati and Alfa Romeo, and so he was the kind of the Mercedes. Let's hire a top, a top gun, and he did do that job. He 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 did win races, which Mark Schumacher obviously didn't do in his in his sort of second coming. Um, the reason he isn't any higher on the list this list because Fagioli actually, Fagioli actually was. Um, someone who who was a, a top liner in the pre-war days, he just couldn't play the game with Mercedes. He fell out with Alfred Neubauer. It was a very fiery Italian versus a very organised German team. He felt that Cracciola was getting preferential treatment. There's even there's even an example of him stopping a perfectly healthy car and walking away when he felt the team orders weren't going in his favour in the middle of the Belgian Grand Prix. Um, so a very fiery character, didn't really fit into the Mercedes mould, so that's why he couldn't really be any higher on this list. But on, on by the same token, he did come and he did win races and he was a front runner. So I kind of thought he had to be there, um, but he couldn't really he couldn't really be any higher. 
I mean, that's a pretty good uh, riposte there, Kev. That's Q put back in his place, not for the not for the first time. Uh, but let's move on uh, to uh, the driver at number nine. We're staying in the pre-war era. And so this list is really testing my inability to pronounce people's uh, names and surnames, which is ironic, really, considering my surname. But there we go. At number nine, it's Manfred von Brautich, as you said, Kev. His Mercedes years, 1934 to 1939, won three times, uh, well, three major Mercedes Grand Prix wins, no titles. Kev, why is von Brautich at number nine? So for me, he's almost like the the Mercedes, the sort of ideal Mercedes number two for this period. So I don't think he ever really... I mean, there were days where he was as quick as the team leaders um, and he did win races. Um, he had a particularly good uh, performance at the 1937 Monaco Grand Prix, which was in the W125. So a 650 brake horsepower monster of a car on tyres that looked like they fit on a on a on a bicycle rather than a racing car these days so yeah pretty phenomenal performance um so he he did have some strong days uh, and he was very quick but he he tended to be the, the the secondary driver um sort of the backup to your to to your Rudolf Caraccioli and then the Herman Lang later on so um wasn't always the luckiest but kind of he's in the list because he was a long-term stalwart of the of the team throughout that period did play the game in a way that Fagioli didn't uh, and probably worth mentioning as well that um as as Q likes to mention Tazio Nuvolari at every opportunity in these podcasts we've decided um Nuvolari's famous pre-war uh 1935 German Grand Prix win uh in uh, an out, uh, outdated Alfa Romeo actually only came about because von Brauchitsch had a puncture on his leading Mercedes in the closing stages. So uh, although it was a great victory from Nuvolari, he did need a bit of luck and it was von Brauchitsch who, not for the first or last time, had a little bit of misfortune on the Mercedes side. So a kind of a, a loyal lieutenant is, is what's got him in the list, really. Yeah, nothing, nothing uh, to disagree with, really, but it's just an observation. I would say probably with the exception of, obviously, Hamilton and Rosberg and Fangio and Moss, Mercedes just really have a good knack at having a number one and almost designated number two during their sustained periods of success. And I think, as Kev has sort of alluded to, this is another another case in point here. Indeed, and that's what's going to make the upcoming Formula One season so fascinating with George Russell so highly rated going up against you know the most successful driver of his era and the most successful driver of all time in Lewis Hamilton uh, but let's come on uh, to the driver at number eight and following on it's another excellent number two driver for Mercedes although I'm sure he'd be absolutely furious to hear himself <laughs> I refer to in such a way it's Valtteri Bottas uh, obviously just departed from the Mercedes Formula One team gone to Alfa Romeo drove for Mercedes between 2017 and 2021 following Nico Rosberg's shock retirement uh, took uh, all of his Grand Prix wins 10 uh, victories and of course no titles Kev why is Bottas at eight and why is he ahead of Ron Brautich if they're of a sort of similar number two sort of status uh, I think e- even more success scored when he was at Mercedes let's not forget that Bottas was, was, has been part of that can run of uh, all those constructors titles and in fact um, on a separate piece I've been working on I, I've sort of compared number two drivers through the years and as you, as you say Bottas hated the wingman tag didn't he but you know the, the reality was that yeah he, he was effectively number two to Hamilton um, and you know Bottas his scores against Hamilton are in perfectly in the window for what you want from a number two. Not normally in the region of causing problems in the way that Nico Rosberg did when he was with Lewis, but scoring enough that they were always strong in the constructors. And I think there's no better example than that uh, than last year when it was Bottas outscoring Sergio Perez that basically meant the Mercedes won the Constructors' Championship and Red Bull didn't. You know, Red Bull should have won both titles with the car it had last year um, and and it didn't. And part of that was down to down to Bottas. I think 
Toto Wolff and Lewis Hamilton talked about the team harmony um, that Bottas brought after the painful years with Rosberg. So, yes, I'm sure he's frustrated that he didn't score, you know, that, that he didn't have a, you know, he was twice runner up in the championship and he scored 10 wins. Um, which is you know perfectly respectable. I think probably Bottas is is frustrated he didn't do more. Apart from his sort of winless run in twenty eighteen, which I think was a poor season. His other seasons were were actually pretty pretty strong. Uh, and he was a was a consummate team player. So yeah, he had to be he had to be in the list. But at no point did you really feel like he was leading the team like most of the other people on on you know further up this list. Also, what's what's always worth remembering Bottas is just how fast he could be over one lap. I think Lewis Hamilton's always keen to point that out. Maybe, maybe almost there's a sort of a, a positive defence mechanism for Hamilton when he's beaten to pole position. Oh, don't forget Valtteri is actually very, very quick. But it's just interesting to, to consider how, how close and how often he actually was able to beat Hamilton in qualifying. I don't think pace was Bottas's problem, was it? Like the, the, the weaknesses <laughs> or, or strength. Depends whether you think they're Bottas' weaknesses or strengths on Hamilton's part, given you are talking about one of the all-time greats. But he couldn't match him in the wet. He couldn't match him wheel-to-wheel. He couldn't match him on on preserving the rubber in a ra- in races to get those stint lengths or, or stint pace. So, yeah, he was. but he's a very fast racer. I think he's a really good signing for, for Alfa Romeo. Um, but uh, and I think he did a great, you know, a really a really good job for Mercedes. This this was a bit where I had to stop scrolling and and just sort of uh, consider Bottas's place because um, you know is it is it is he sort of uh, hurt by having left the team so recently? And are we are we looking on him less favourably than that? But you know the the same method of arbitration that we use where we do this list or or when you know we're organising the top fifty at the end of the year, not only to our writers and whatever have to offer their suggestions of who should come into the list but they have to in that place argue people out of the list it sort of has to be a two-way process and I applied that to here and I just couldn't I couldn't I thought initially Bottas maybe had been a bit hard done by but I couldn't argue him any further up this list for sort of his his significance to the team and his achievements and how he compared alongside Hamilton um I would say there's probably you know in terms of steps there's probably quite a big jump between um between ninth place and eighth place in terms of performance and what they contributed to Mercedes but I just don't think Bottas's case is stronger to get any higher on this list we'll go back to me mispronouncing another another driver on this list it's at number seven Christian Lautenschlager now uh, as Kev mentioned this is the driver uh, who comes from the pre-first world war era his Mercedes years uh, cover races in 1908 and then 1913 to 1914 took two major Grand Prix wins no titles but again Kev what what titles would he have been competing for in that era? Yeah, exactly. There were there were no titles to win. In fact, at various points in the early days of Grand Prix racing, there was one Grand Prix a year. You know, the French Grand Prix. So, I guess if you were being American about it, you'd say that was that was the World Championship, and whoever wins that is world champion. But obviously, they didn't they didn't do that uh, in in those days. But the French Grand Prix was the one to win. Uh, I think it's Lautenschlager, although I'm I'm up for for Germans um, getting in touch and, and telling us how we should be saying it. But um, yeah, so he was uh, sort of a remarkable guy. Actually, he he was with the sort of Daimler Mercedes pretty much all his life, and he did he did pretty much everything. He was a machinist. He was a mechanic. He was a co-driver. He was a test driver, uh, and he got an opportunity to race one of the Mercedes this is before Mercedes and Benz were together um, that's how far back we're going um, in the 1908 French Grand Prix uh, which he then won which is pretty amazing so yeah have a go at this this Grand Prix racing like oh I'm quite good at this um, and he won by nine minutes from two uh, two Benzes so yeah that's kind of a nice nice little bit of uh, symmetry there for history um, 
Uh, and but the, the reason he's on this list is because of the 1914 French Grand Prix. I would argue that this is probably milestone number one for Mercedes, the, kind of the standing that it has in automotive and motorsport history. Um, it had all it had a lot of the hallmarks that we've come to uh, expect from them. They uh, didn't do anything by halves. They entered five cars for the French Grand Prix. They had meticulous preparation. They were run uh, in a very organised fashion. Um, and they came up against the Peugeot team, which had won the previous two races, and Georges Boileau, who I think was probably the top driver of his era, put in a frankly heroic performance against the Mercs, and they were they only needed one pit stop for tyres. The Peugeots needed five or six, so he was absolutely having to flog this thing. Remember, this isn't on tarmac roads. This is on gravelly, broken-up, huge, long lap um, type stuff, um, and eventually the Peugeot started to wheel, and Lautenschlager just moved through, uh, took the lead towards the end and, and led a Mercedes 1-2-3 as the Peugeot finally failed. So um, this was kind of a big statement. If you remember, obviously, this is with the background tension of what is about to become the First World War as well. So it's quite a big thing, you know, a big German team effectively invading French territory and beating the French team and finishing 1-2-3. So there's a lot of the start point of the Mercedes legend, I think, there. Um, and as, as the man that, that did it and that crossed the line first, a very measured driver, I think, yeah, he had to be... Putting him in was difficult because he got such a small sample size. But in terms of significance, you know, I think he did three major races for... Uh, Mercedes and he won two of them so that's 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 pretty good so he, he had to be on the list somewhere no again I had to say I agree with Kev but it's another one of those sort of fascinating motorsport what ifs because obviously the the French Grand Prix that he won it, it was you know I think less than a week after Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated so you know his as Kev says his his strike rate was sort of you know it particularly impressive particularly stand out but how would that have fared if basically Grand Prix racing had continued over the next three years would he have maintained that would he have been sort of a an era defining great or or you know is is he remembered better I suppose because he had fewer opportunities but but took the ones he had and I think you know he was well into his 40s wasn't he by the time sort of racing resumed and, and then and then you know not that you'd probably count it towards this score anyway, because it it wasn't Grand Prix racing. But you know, the, I don't think that the Mercedes uh, in the twenties, the Indy five hundred effort was a was a bit was a bit damp. So he he falls foul of that, and, and you know was was an old racing driver, I guess, by the time he comes back. But it'd just be just be interesting. Another one of those tangents when you're sort of. Uh, having a bout of insomnia one night is to consider what might have happened had had basically the first world war not happened but then i suppose if you're considering that you're probably not focusing on one racing driver if you're considering what the world might look like if the first world war hadn't broken out oh so that's a terrible cure for insomnia that's really interesting go back to counting sheep or reading kev's top tens oh brutal absolutely brutal. strike two <laughs> well, to Alex's podcasts. <laughs> let's move on to the driver at number six. I should have no problem pronouncing his name. It's Sterling Moss. Drove for Mercedes in Formula One in 1955. Won once. No titles, of course. Now, Kev, I've got a question here. How much did it pain you not to put Sterling Moss at number one? <laughs> um, no, not too much because um, I think I understand the context of my own list, hopefully. So I, <laughs> you, I, you, you would know, really I, hope that, yeah. I would would hope that if nobody else did, then I would at least get it. So no, I mean there was a. I kind of thought, could I get him any higher than this? I did toy with the idea of putting him in at five because in terms of his, yeah his ability, he could be well much higher up this list. Um, you know, I think Enzo Ferrari picked out Nuvolari. I 
get Matt, get Matt's uh, Matt's hero in again. Uh, Moss and Gilles Villeneuve's uh, the three best drivers he ever seen. But we're looking at it in the through the lens of what he did at Mercedes. And he joined. Actually, there are some parallels to the 2022 situation again because you had Fangio as the established number one, and you know multiple world champion by then. Um, well, he only had two world championships at that stage, rather than Lewis's seven. Um, but um, yeah, Moss was hired very much to give Fangio um, some backup because in 1954 he really hadn't had that very much. Um, you know, Fangio had done almost all the heavy lifting in in the World Championship. There was no constructors championship to win, so Fangio won the drivers championship and and uh, the job was done. But I think Neubauer knew that he needed somebody else. Moss was that person, having impressed in two fifty F Maseratis the year before. Uh, but Moss didn't come in with the what we anticipate George Russell's mentality will be, which is or or even Hamilton's when he joined Fernando Alonso at McLaren, which is I have to make my mark. I'm going to try and beat the 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 guy. Moss was very much like he is the guy. I'm going to follow him and learn what I can and do my bit for the team. So you know there are races where he just followed followed Fangio around. Um, obviously, he won the British Grand Prix and was never sure whether Fangio let him win that or not. I think you get a probably a better idea of where where they were at in sports car racing, where I think Moss felt a bit off the leash and he was the quicker driver of the two in 300 SLRs and basically won the World Sports Car Championship for Mercedes. But we're not including that here because this is a Grand Prix list. So I couldn't push him up uh, any further. He was He's the highest number two driver, if you like. And this is the only context in which I will accept Sterling Moss as being talked about as a number two driver. Well, I mean, just as a quick aside, I don't actually know when this podcast uh, is going to be published, but Kev, you've just you've just basically written my column for Autosport magazine uh, next week after you're recording this, so that's very good. I've I've got a good idea for that now. Thank you very much, uh, Matt. How do you feel about <laughs> Sterling Moss being at number six? Again, comfortable with it. I think there's a there's a real it's step. It's boring when you agree with Kev. Talk about Nuvolari again. Really stump him. <laughs> Never drove I've, for Mercedes, so there's no use on well, this. Wow, <laughs> it'll confuse you or something. I, I don't I don't disagree with with Moss's ranking, but I think what you will see now is a is a real sort of step change in in the achievements and uh, and titles won in this list going forward, and and a contribution to you know that that sort of second criteria, not just what they did in the car, but how much they're a foundation of building a a great era of the Mercedes Grand Prix team. I think from now on you'll see you'll see drivers that sort of contributed more on, on both both counts. Indeed. Well, let's get on to the next driver on the list. At number five, it's 2016 world champion Nico Rosberg. Uh, drove for Mercedes between 2010 and that 2016 season where he was victorious over Lewis Hamilton. Uh, won 23 times and, of course, as I said, took the title that year. So, Kev, why is Rosberg at number five? Well, his contribution is, is similar to, to Bottas in terms of championships won um, and obviously he won a lot more Grand Prix although the car was more competitive at that point um, but more disruptive so and I mean that in both good and a bad way so I think he had to be like that to be able to win a driver's championship and let's face it he did win the driver's championship in 2016 Bottas didn't ever manage to get the better of Lewis Hamilton now you might say that Rosberg employed tactics that you wouldn't agree with or that Bottas just wouldn't that'd be perfectly legitimate to say that but Rosberg did, and he did win the World Championship as Lewis Hamilton's teammate, which I think is, you know, is an achievement that you could die out on for quite a long time, really. Um, obviously, he was there from right from the start in 2010 as well, building it up with, um, you know, through the Ross Braun era, and you know, he was never embarrassed by Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, you know, let's face it, they were they did have some, yeah, you know, some very strong races together and against each other. 
So, you know, he was very close to being the full package. He's just not quite as good as Lewis Hamilton, who's one of the, you know, the greatest racing drivers of all time. So I think that puts him high up on the list. The thing that I guess detracts from that is that, yeah, the, the, clearly Mercedes was not a happy place by the time we got to the end of 2016. And it probably needed somebody like Bottas to come in and not be like Nico Rosberg. Um, so that's why he's not any higher. But I thought, you know, 23 Grand Prix wins and a world champion couldn't really be any lower either. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Uh, Matt, how do you feel about Rosberg being at number five? Do you think that that's a bit low considering he did take a title for Mercedes? No, I don't. Because if if you sort of just look past that title, I know I know it's impossible to do because Rosberg's epithet until, you know, his dying day will be that he was a Formula One world champion. But if you take that away, I don't know, was were 2010 to 2012, those three years, OK, he got Mercedes' first win Um in, in China but were they too sort of fallow were they too lean for three years for his contribution towards building the super team to you know really elevate him into the next level um I yeah okay I'll use that to argue against him but what I will say is I'm, I'm you know he doesn't always come off best in the sort of Hamilton Rosberg personality duel but without him they could have been three like terrifically boring Grand Prix seasons, um, you know, 2014 onwards. So the fact that they had that rival and yes, okay, Mercedes probably wasn't a particularly nice place to be. We we know that now, but he gave us something to watch. He gave us a subplot. So I have to be grateful to him for that. I think also um, it's not any criticism of Rosberg being in fifth. For me, he was a very good Grand Prix driver of his era and the four drivers ahead of him on this list are either the greatest or one of the greatest of their era. And that that, that to me is the difference. He's a kind of a a 1.5 driver. And and the four ahead of him are, are, are absolute number one top draw drivers. So so that was the that was the logic really. Quick question, uh, Kev, on on Rosberg and harking back to what you were saying about Michael Schumacher at the start. Does how close Rosberg was able to get to Hamilton and how tight the fight was at times does that make you reassess Schumacher's uh, Schumacher's Mercedes era because they weren't you know he wasn't exactly blown away by Rosberg. Yes, a little bit. I think that Michael's um, second era was looks better now than it probably did at the end of 2012 because we now know that Nico Rosberg actually wasn't a million miles off off Lewis Hamilton we now know where he stands in the sport so yes Schumacher's time there was perfectly reasonable and and solid and good but not if you compare it to seven world titles and 91 world championship grand prix that he achieved in his first career Um, so you know it it (laughs) Yeah, it pales into insignificance, doesn't it, compared to his his achievements at at, at Ferrari and Benetton. Without going down a rabbit hole here as well, though, I would say that, you know, we we saw what it did to to Rosberg to beat Hamilton, how how much he had to dig deep and sort of to win every mental battle. And then obviously he considered that his peak and and walked away from the sport altogether sort of after then, certainly as a driver. So so I don't think you should see sort of Rosberg as one middleman between Schumacher and Hamilton. I think there were sort of almost two Rosbergs, if that makes sense. 
And what's interesting, just one final point on this, is that Matt, your point about if, if Rosberg isn't there, that's three really dull seasons at the start of the turbo hybrid era. Also, potentially, you might not get Lewis Hamilton being as good as he was because what happened in 2016 made Hamilton realise, well, I've got to take every single opportunity. I can't risk anything happening or I'll lose titles and I think that has made him a better driver so it's just it's just interesting to consider he Linka Rosberg actually had quite a big impact on Formula 1's history yeah I would say there are certain drivers that made other great drivers even more mega like, I don't think Etten Senna would have been hit as mega as he was without an Alain Prost uh, you might say maybe Prost wouldn't have reached the heights he did without a Senna and Lewis Hamilton is definitely a better racing driver as a result of losing to Nico Rosberg in, in 20... Because he shouldn't have lost that championship, even with the mechanical failures. He had bad starts and a few weekends where he wasn't quite wasn't quite there. And as you say, Alex, he's made absolutely sure uh, that that's not, that's not going to happen again. Well, sadly, this isn't the top 10 greatest things about a Nico Rosberg podcast. But maybe we could record that one day. Who knows? Maybe we could probably get him on. He's, you know, he's, he's always hanging around the F1 paddock, doesn't do any excellent work there and uh, Formula E, Extreme E, things like that. But let's move on, Kev, to your top four Mercedes drivers. At number four, it's Herman Lang. We're going back to before the Second World War. He drove for Mercedes between 1935 and 1939, took eight wins. Although there's a note here, Kev, that says this, that excludes the 1939 Tripoli GP. Didn't take any titles, but uh, yeah, could you just explain that note? Why, why, why is the 1939 Tripoli GP excluded, please? Oh, the 1939 Tripoli Grand Prix is one of my favourite motorsport of stories. Of course it is. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, so very basically, um, obviously the Germans... Uh, by which I mean Mercedes and Auto Union winning everything Grand Prix racing in the 1930s um, and the Italians were pretty hacked off about it um, and they had concentrated their efforts in voiturette racing which was effectively Formula 2 if you like um, and Tripoli was an Italian colony, co- colony and they decided somewhere between six and eight months beforehand that the Tripoli Grand Prix which had always been for full-on Grand Prix cars would be run to voiturette races. So the idea being that the Mercedes and Auto Union teams wouldn't bother building a car, they didn't have a car, and that the Italians, probably with the Alfa Romeo 158, which was brand new at the time, would rock up and win. Mercedes, in total secrecy, went, well, we're not having that, and built two one-and-a-half-litre supercharged cars, for the, specifically for the race. One of them was finished on the boat to the track. They rocked up and finished first and second against 30-odd Italian cars. It's just one of my favourite stories of, of, of an organiser trying to screw over a team and the team just going, nope, not having that, we're still going to be better. Can you imagine the expense and effort to develop two, uh, you know, a new model just for the sake of making a point? I just think it's an absolutely fantastic story. And Lang was the, Lang was the driver that won. So it was a major race and it, um, yeah, I think it was a fantastic story, but it doesn't count in his Grand Prix wins because it wasn't for Grand Prix cars, if that makes sense. Um Going back to Matt, what Matt was saying earlier about the First World War, if he once he sorted out what the world would be like without the First World War, he can move on to what the world would be like without the Second. Uh, and in most racing terms, Herman Lang is the big loss, um, the, the, the driver that loses out the most. He's he he's got a great story. He starts off as a mechanic on Fagioli's car. He's far more level-headed than Fagioli. He proves his worth in various um, tests gets a few chances in cars, very, very good at high-speed venues. He won the Avis Renan uh, in, um, in a special streamlined uh, version of the Mercedes at over 160 miles an hour. So that is faster than any World Championship Grand Prix uh, still, and that was back in 1937. So he's very good on fast circuits. And I would say by 1939, he is 
he becomes the best Mercedes driver. And there was actually some debate at the time, was he European champion? Because under the previous point scoring system, he wasn't. But there had been a new system proposed in 1939. He was. Germany and Mercedes decided that he was therefore champion. Um, uh, but it was never officially recognised because the Second World War got in the way. So he was definitely the best driver of 1939, whether he was champion or not, open to debate. And then, of course, he loses the best years of what would have been his career uh, because of the Second World. And he did come back um, afterwards, didn't really do much in, in single-seaters, although he did win uh, Le Mans with Mercedes. So... Um, absolutely brilliant driver. I think he's up there. If you're having a debate about the greatest 1930s Grand Prix drivers, it's probably Max Fren, Nuvolari, Caracciola, um, Bernd Rose, my full union, and, and and Herman Lang. So yeah, absolutely uh, top top draw driver. Just as uh, just as war broke out. Well, I think we can we can fairly safely say that that's uh, that's a position that Matt. We know you're not disagreeing with too many of these uh, placings. I think it's fairly solid case there for Lang at number four. Let's move on to the driver at number three, one of Formula One's most famous names. It's one Manuel Fangio. Uh, drove for Mercedes in Formula One between 1954 and 1955. Uh, took nine wins, eight in the World Championship, and of course, the title of those two seasons. So, Kev, Fangio, why is he at number three? Why is he not higher? <laughs> yes, I suppose that is the question, isn't it? Um, no one's going to argue that he shouldn't be in there with two drivers' championships uh, and such a high a high strike rate. I guess the reason he's not higher is that the two... It, it's more about the two people ahead of him than anything uh, to criticise Fangio for in his time at Mercedes, which was, which was pretty much exemplary. Um, uh, uh, but he wasn't there for very long. He was only there for the, for the two seasons. Both the people ahead of him had much longer-term bigger impacts for Mercedes and won a lot more races. Um, so it's purely that, really. I'm not suggesting that the two ahead of him are necessarily greater drivers. That's a separate debate. But in terms of their impacts on Mercedes, um, I, I just couldn't justify putting Fangio any higher um, than number three. But it's, it's more about the people that are ahead than, than, than him himself. Uh, I'm comfortable with it again. I know I know this is boring that, you know, we're, we're all in alignment, but... Um, you know, Mercedes pulling out of motorsport obviously naturally truncates how how successful Fangio could be. You know that brought the partnership to to a halt. And also, I I do I do wonder. So if we you know we're going to go to um, who's in second place, I do wonder whether you know Fangio's sort of um, relationship with Ullenhart compared to uh, Caracciola and um, Neubauer, which was more sort of. Um, instrumental in building in building Mercedes and I think again you probably you probably give it to the driver in in second place so I think again is Fangio is that fair to say that he's probably limited to third can't climb any higher yeah I think so I remember I mean Ullenhout and, and Norbauer would have been involved with both um, and it's a shame also we can't speak to them to get their views on on working with Rudolf Kratzschel and one man now Fangio but all three of us have been born too late to try and do those interviews unfortunately but uh, yeah uh, exactly that um, it's it's just the amount of time, and you're, you're very yeah you're right to point out that of course Mercedes and Fangio could have continued as a combination for several more seasons had it not been for their from their withdrawal after the Le Mans disaster, which of course is a race that they were also going to win. I'm pretty convinced that Fangio and Sterling Moss as a combo in the 300 SLR Merck was going to win Le Mans in 1955, um, which is not not a, not to slight the Jaguar Detail, which is one of my favourite sports cars. But um, yeah, Mercedes weren't going to lose that race. But of course, the, the terrible accident that killed over 80 people uh, led to uh, Mercedes withdrawing from, from top-line motorsport for, for a very long time at the end of 1955. 
Well, let's move on to the top two drivers. I mean, I'm sure if you've uh, been paying attention, and I really do hope you have to this podcast, you'll know that at number two is Rudolf Caracciola. But at number one, I'm going to need to reveal them at the, uh, reveal the number one at the same time so that Kev can explain why they're in this particular order. Again, I don't think it will still come as anything of a shock. It's Lewis Hamilton. Uh, but going back to Caracciola, he drove for Mercedes between 1926 and 1931, and then again between 1934 and 1939. He took 17 major Grand Prix victories for Mercedes. A few were excluded on this list. Kevin should have explained why, and took those three uh, European titles in 1935, 1937, and 1938. And then the stats for Lewis Hamilton um, at Mercedes from uh, 2013 up until the present, he's he's won a staggering. I mean, it, it makes me laugh just because of the just the size of this number. 82 victories uh, for Mercedes and of course taken six titles with them uh, 2014 to 2015 and 2017 to 2020 and of course he has that one title historically with McLaren back in 2008 but Kev why are those two drivers that way around? I think with both of these drivers, we're looking at someone who, you, when you talk about them, you immediately think of their time at Mercedes. Now, they both drove and had successes elsewhere. Actually, Lewis Hamilton probably marginally more so than, than Caracciola. But they're both, you know, they're big successes, they're big contributions. The reason that they are legends of motorsport are what they achieved at Mercedes. Um, and why is Hamilton head? I think it's probably through um, its, its, sheer, its sheer volume of success uh, in a in an era that's that's more competitive, really, as well. Um, I guess for Caracciolo, you could say, well, he had more teammates. There were more cars entered by Mercedes and Auto Union when he was racing. But we, you know, the last few years of of, of Formula One have been incredibly competitive, um, and yeah, you know, Hamilton has just re- just been able to maintain or improve himself for such a long period of time. Um, and what would Mercedes have achieved without him? Um, I think that's a big question. Obviously, they would have had the, they'd have still had the better turbo hybrid engine at the start of 2014. Their success between 14 and 16, I think that they could have had with a number of top drivers in the car. But I would suggest that since 2017, he's really, he's really earned his, um, yeah, earned his crust, if you like. I think 2018 was was a fantastic campaign and. I think Mercedes could easily have lost that championship. Ferrari probably could have could have won 2018, um, but Hamilton was better than Vettel. I'd say that ha- Hamilton was key in driving Mercedes along to make the best of, you know, a compromised car last year in 2021. You know, he wasn't prepared to go, oh, this this year's in the bin. Let's look for 2022 chaps. He was really pushing to know, come on, we can make more of this car. Um, you know, he drives that team along. He's an intrinsic part of what makes Mercedes as great as it has been, you know, unprecedented run of success, even surpassing Mark Schumacher at Ferrari. Um, and and he's still not finished. You know, who's to say that he won't come back and win another title or another two titles? Um, and, you know, even if George Russell does end up beating him, if it might not be this year, it might be next year, as ultimately one driver gets older uh, and a, a new one is, is rising, eventually they cross over. But his place in 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 sporting history and Mercedes history is, is assured already, of course. Just to go back to, to Cratchit, you asked about the excluded races. So <laughs> the Grand Prix racing in the sort of various points between the wars got a little bit crazy at one stage. They're effectively running it to anything. There's a there's there's one race where where a, a supercharged Bentley which you'd think of as a Le Mans car, actually finished second in a Grand Prix. I mean, rules uh, being made made up at random, that would never happen in, form, in Formula 1 in the modern era, would it? 
No, no, quite exactly. Yeah, so Bite, biting satire there for for the for the, for the, for the keen keenly observing listener. Anyway, sorry, Kev, carry yeah. on. Well, no, it was, so it's very difficult. So some some Grand Prix were run essentially for sports cars. They were sports car races, um, and uh, Caracciolo won quite a few in SS, SSK, and SSKL, which were enormous. And what you call them, touring cars, sports cars. Um, but he also won things like the Targa Florio in them. And I thought if I started including those, then you're starting to include effectively sports car wins in a Grand Prix list, which didn't seem right. So the 17 major Mercedes Grand Prix wins actually does Caracciola a disservice. Um, I think the other thing that's remarkable about him is that he scores his three European championship titles for Mercedes, most of his wins after his serious accident at Monaco in 1933. So while Mercedes weren't in Grand Prix racing, he drove uh, Alfa Romeo. Um, actually, at one stage, he went toe-to-toe with Nuvolari and they won a couple of races each in similar equipment. So we're talking that level of, of, of great. Uh, big crash at Monaco, came back, 1934, still wasn't quite there, still recovering. And then he becomes the guy again from from 35, probably to some way during 1938. I think probably the balance of power starts to swing back, uh, starts to swing to to Herman Lang. Um, But uh, he still holds the record for the most uh, German Grand Prix wins. uh, And he did that at the Nürburgring as well. So anyone that uh, could master the Nordschleife uh, has to be considered a legend. So yeah, Kratzschola absolutely in the discussion for, if if you're talking about the greatest racing drivers of all time, you go back beyond 1950, as of course you should do. Um, He's in the debate, but Lewis Hamilton is just, you know, he's, uh, he's perhaps he's just slightly higher up that debate. Well, Matt, I mean, it's going to be fairly difficult, I think, for you to argue that for a reversal of positions with these two drivers. But do you sort of agree with the reasoning of just the sheer weight and numbers of statistics that Hamilton has racked up just just gets him ahead almost automatically, really? I do. And obviously, I'm not going to mount a case for Lewis Hamilton not being number one overall. But I think there is a a slight segment where maybe... um, um, Caracciola sort of has has one up on Hamilton. That's you know how we how one of the criteria when we've done our greatest car series, and you have to look at the level of competition. I think what Caracciola was facing in you know the Auto Union, the the, the Type C, and and Bern, Bern, uh, Bern Rosemeyer in particular, that as a level of competition, sort of driving Mercedes on at that period and winning against Auto Union, I think is probably a stiffer competition than Hamilton has faced in his time at Mercedes. And I think maybe in, in that one element, you, you can make a case for, for you know, uh, Lewis Hamilton not quite being number one in all areas. But I think, you know, everywhere else, Hamilton's got its statistics, what he means to the team. Um, and, and, you know, obviously the debate is, oh, he's just he's just got the best car, whatever. But he's 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 made that the reality by, you know, driving that team on forward. And, and you know, th- th- there's a reason that, you know, Mercedes has announced its initiatives and what it's done with painting the, the car black, not sort of as a, as a token gesture because Hamilton's quick. It's because he is embedded in that team and, and, and sort of have pushed it on and has pushed it on to the sort of behemoth of Formula One of Grand Prix racing of motorsport that it's become. And the one final thing I'll add is that I, you know, when we've wrapped up this series, I'll have been on three podcasts. One was um, Ferrari's uh, top 10 and you know it's, it's very clear who the number one in that is and that uh, the current lineup are are some way off ever matching you know Schumacher's achievements uh, the the other one uh, and you know these these episodes will have gone out in the end of the series it'll be Lotus obviously Lotus you know 
very unlikely even with its new sort of Chinese ownership to come back into F1 and continue that lineage. So the exciting thing here is not only is Hamilton the active, an active driver, but that means he can then go on to achieve more and, and those those statistics and all probability get stronger and stronger and stronger. And that, that is quite an exciting uh, little side note, I think. Can I just say as well that in there was one of the reasons why I love these podcasts. So what effectively Matt just asked me to do there was compare Bernd Rosemeyer and Auto Union with Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari and Max Verstappen at Red Bull, which is about a 70 or 80 year gap, which is absolutely fantastic. Not something I pondered. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and make everyone listen while I ponder away, but um, excellent. Well, of course, Rosemeyer unfortunately was was killed um, very very soon, so he was he was um, a sort of shining star for a very brief time. But uh, yeah, I'll go away uh, and have a think about that. So, Bernd Rosemeyer versus Max Verstappen is not a, not a combination I'd uh, I'd previously considered. Well, there we go. We got obviously, obviously, it has a sad ending. But if it means Red Bull and Mercedes going head to head in like making four hundred mile an hour land speed record cars again, then bring it on. Well, I think I think it's safe to say we've had our new Valari moment of this podcast. Kev uh, will be will be smarting about that for days, which we like to see. But anyway, right, that is very the happy podcast. to talk about new Valari. <laughs> very happy to I talk know. about. T- we should do. A, do you want are. to do a top ten pre-war Grand Prix drivers list, and then we can uh, then we can talk about new Valari quite a lot. But uh, can I'm you, not can sure you, how many people do- would want to listen to that. Can you do it now? Can you can you just reel them off? No, I'd have to do it. But well, I think the four that I've mentioned are, are probably the, the four. But uh, no, I'll have to go away and have a think about that. But would everyone want to listen to that? I'll tell you what, email yeah. me, kevin.turnoutallsport.com if you want a, a top 10 pre-war Grand Prix drivers list and I'll get started on it. Also, don't email me about the mispronunciations because one, with my surname, I've had every mispronunciation out of the sun and two, most of them are dead now, so they won't they won't mind <laughs> these drivers. Hopefully, Hi- that's a- <laughs> highly offensive. Email me. You can email me complaining about it. That's fine. I shall uh, I shall accept I shall accept such emails. Thank you both. Thank you everybody for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun with over eighty casino style games to choose from. You too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Message and data rates may apply. Guys, got hair loss? I know what you're thinking. Should I shave my head, comb it over, wear a hat? Just stop. This is in 1970. Keep your hair and your confidence because Bosley, America's number one hair restoration experts, can give you your real hair back permanently. Check them out today because they're giving away an absolutely free information kit and a free gift card to anyone that texts EASY to 203203. Dude, you don't have to look like your dad because this isn't your dad's hair loss treatment. 
People all over the country trust Bosley because they're ahead of the curve. They use the latest technology to give you your real hair back. And the best part? Bosley's permanent solution is protected by the Bosley Guarantee. Let Bosley show you for free how awesome your hair could look with an absolutely free information kit and a gift card for $250 off. Text EASY to 203203. That's B-A-S-Y to 203203. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.